Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Okay, so uh, uh, let's start off with a really simple question. By the show of hands, raise your hands, who saw 2020 coming? (laughs) I mean, who knew, who knew that 2020 was going to turn the whole flipping card over for pretty much the whole flipping world? I mean, who saw that coming? And, uh, you know, I chuckle, but that was... That was tough for a lot of people. I mean, industries were put on hold. And like uh, the notion of conventions and convention centers, and that was all shelved. And, and if that was your livelihood and your income stopped, or or you had to suddenly do something else for a living, and maybe you're up there in years and learning something new was tough. I mean, I mean, ow! I mean, what do you do? What do you do when you bump up against something that is kind of a steamroller as far as whether you want it to happen or not? I mean. When a life event comes your way, like a freight train, and no matter what you do to try to sway it, it seems to have the, its own agenda, and it doesn't really, really care how it impacts you. I mean, and this can happen in so many ways, an unexpected um, death of a spouse or uh, lose your job or 2020 or um, it, it's just uh, it's something that that can touch all of us it doesn't have to touch all of us but it can but what do you do when you bump up against something you didn't see coming and and it it really sets your narrative on its head. I'm excited for tonight's show because we're going to talk about just that. The topic tonight is Mom and Dementia and Me, A Caregiver's Journey. And our guest tonight is Leona Upton-Illig. And we're going to bring her on in just a minute. But... Have you ever have you ever stood in your life and said, "What am I going to do? Why do I? I don't know what to do. I don't I don't know how to take a step forward because I don't know which way to go. I don't. I, you know, um, I'm bumping up against something I have no experience with. I'm I'm being pushed into a condition that. I have no idea whether I can endure it or not. I mean, we've talked about some pretty tough stuff on this program over the years, but I th- I think after the last couple of years, it's it's a very relevant topic. And uh, 
before we we delve into the episode, I want to thank the the listeners. Again, India is ticking up, and and the United Kingdom is is ticking up, and Australia. I appreciate you as listeners. We do it for you, right? For tonight's episode, I want to thank Sarah Scarlett. She's a publicist that recommended this uh, this episode. Sarah can be reached at uh, scarletpublicity.com. I've worked with Sarah for many years, and uh, we, we had quite a conversation about tonight's episode, and I just want to thank Sarah for um, helping to bring this show on the air. And, I, and I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Susan. Susan and I have worked, we're probably coming up on a decade here in a, a year or so of, of getting guests on the show and guests from all over the world, from all time zones. Susan's fantastic at figuring out what the time zone is in Timbuktu. <laughs> and, and organizing the middle of the night, early morning interviews, pre-records for um, people really all over the planet. It's uh, it's people like that that I appreciate, and I I know the show it just wouldn't be the same without the support that I get from people like Sarah and Susan. So I want to thank them. Well, I think we should get to it. But um, if you, the listener, have a tough challenge in your life, or maybe you don't even know that there's a tough challenge in the next few months or a few years, or it might even be a decade, to to talk about the how how we as humans how we how we deal with things that are um, that are tough. That, that's what I like about tonight's episode. I think we should get to it. Hundreds of thousands of people die from dementia every year, and their relatives and friends number in the millions. It's a club no one wants to belong to. But the good news is you can find help. You just need to know where to look. Her book, Mom and Dementia and Me, A Caregiver's Journey, answers some of your questions. In 2014, Leona's mother began to show signs of dementia and four years later passed away from complications from that disease. With no formal medical training and no caregiving experience, Leona suddenly had to navigate a complex, confusing system of medicines, doctors, and treatments. Her book, which actually contains much humor, is written from a lay person's point of view to help others benefit from what she's learned. Join me in welcoming Leona to the show. Leona, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. You know, I want to say kudos to you for sharing your journey in your book. I mean, it's 
you, you're you're really opening up your life and your challenges in a in a very public way. And I know it's not always easy to not only go through something like that, but then to turn around and and put it on paper, so to speak, and share it with others. Um, thank you for having that, having the wherewithal to do that. At what point did you think about writing a book about this? Well, I'll tell you, I never thought I'd be writing a book like this. I, I never thought mom, my mom would have dementia, and I never thought I'd be writing about it. But what happened was, after my mom passed away, a lot of people, my friends and some people I didn't even know, but who knew about my mom, they'd ask me things like, well, what was it like, and how did you cope with that? And so I started, I would tell them, and I'd tell them as much as I could um, think about at the time. But it got to be after a while, I thought, you know, everybody wants to know what it was like. Why don't I just write about it? And it it wasn't a hard book to write, to be honest, because all through Mom's um, uh, disease, I had been keeping a diary. So I had notes in that diary that could jog my memory. And so I thought... Well, the one thing I could do, I can't do anything for my mom anymore, but I can maybe help some other people. And even though my experience might not be exactly like anybody else's, and there might be significant differences, maybe if there's just one thing that I write down in this book that's of use to somebody else, uh, that will make it worthwhile, and in a way it will honor my mom. So that's why I did it. Well, it's, uh, I mean, you share in the book where at first you you really didn't want to even think about the the dementia aspect of, of what might be coming. I, I mean, who who sits around and thinks about that? The, and, and, and yet to see it so uh, slowly, you know, progress and, and, you have to kind of come to terms with things, and sometimes it's not always that easy. You don't really want to think that that's, that dementia might be what's in, affecting you. How was it to? How was it for you to uh, come to terms or come to realize um, the scope of what was before you and, and the possibility of where it might take you? Oh, it it took quite a while because the first phase both mom and I went through was denial. You know, in our society, it's it's easy for our society to say, well, as people get older, um, they're going to forget things or they're going to misplace things. That's just a a symptom of old age. But dementia is not like that. It has has different um, symptoms. But still, the... um, the instinct to deny what's happening is really strong. Mom and I had both loved Robin Williams, his, uh, his show, Mork and Mindy. We, he was one of the greatest comedians. And so <laughs> we had heard that he had uh, died of complications of what they called Lewy body dementia, but we didn't know anything about that and, and really not much about uh, what he had suffered through or, or his death. And, but both of mom and I would say to each other, that'll never happen to us. Well, how wrong we were. And one of the, the 
the hard things about dementia is not so much these days because there's been a lot of publicity about it, but in those days um, you didn't see a lot about what are the symptoms of dementia. How do you know if you have it? If you have it, is, is there any treatment for it? There's a little more information about that now, but um, when I was going through it, I didn't know anything about it, and I didn't have much information for it either. Um, if, you, if you're interested in some of the um, early symptoms, which I missed, by the way, I can go into them. Sure. Okay. Well, one of the first things that um, I noticed about Mom was that we used to go to the mall all the time and, and shop and do everything together. And uh, the la- one of the last times I had her at the mall, I realized uh, she was walking behind me, not beside me, as she normally did. And uh, and I saw that her, her leg, one of her legs seemed to be coming down a little harder than the other one, um, she, almost like shuffling, but a, a leg coming down heavier than the next one. And my only thought was, gee, Mom must need new shoes. <laughs> I even told that to her. I said, Mom, next time we come to the mall, we've got to get some new shoes because, you know, you, you're not walking very well there. And she sort of nodded and laughed, and we, and we brushed it off. Well, the next time we went to the mall, we were intending to get new shoes, but it never happened because we happened to be on one of the escalators, and Mom was on the escalator step behind me. And all of a sudden, I heard her say, oops, and I looked over, and Mom had sat down on the escalator. Uh, she had lost her balance, and her legs had given out. So you, you think, you know, what do you do in a situation like that? The only thing I could do was think of, say, what, ask her, Mom, what are you doing down there? <laughs> and she <laughs> said, I don't know. <laughs> But somehow I managed to get her up, and before we hit the down, the actual floor we were going to, and we got off the escalator, and uh, Mom stood up, and she was okay. And I said, are you all right, Mom? She said, yeah, but don't worry. Nobody saw. It's okay. And that that was a thing with our family. If you didn't see something, it didn't happen. And so we went through a little period of denial there where uh, we said, well, it's just, it's just being a senior citizen, uh, we'll, we'll work around it. But uh, things got worse um, soon afterwards. Well, I I'd imagine it, it could be kind of tough to have discernment because, I mean, it's not uncommon for the uh for the elderly to lose their balance once in a while or, mm-hmm. um, That's right. you know what I mean? It, yeah. I, I can see how it'd be easy to just kind of discount it with, you know, she's getting up there in the years, uh, things like this are, are going to happen. We don't need to worry about it. Yeah. But, but what happens with a lot of dementias is that these, these early symptoms, um, will be compounded with other things. Uh, for one thing, um, mom started to have uh, more frequent uh, bouts of dizziness. And then there was her appetite. I would usually go to the – mom lived by herself because my dad had died some years uh, earlier. So mom lived by herself in a farmhouse, and I, I usually did her grocery shopping for her. 
And um, Mom was a good eater and a, and a good cook. But after a while, I realized she was asking for the same kinds of foods over and over again. And I would buy them and bring them. And then I'd open the refrigerator, and they'd the other the last grocery uh, shopping I'd done for were, were still in the refrigerator. And I'd wonder why, Mom, did you need some more? And she would just laugh it off, and I would keep doing it. So that so there was a a thing about the dizziness and about the appetite, what she was eating or what she wasn't eating, because as she lived alone, I, I didn't really have a, a good sense of um, just how much she was eating. But the other thing was uh, confusion between uh, reality and fiction. Mom loved TV. We watched the soap operas. So there were some soap operas out here on the East Coast called um, As the World Turns and The Guiding Light. And then when they went off the air, another one came on called General Hospital. She loved all of them. But one day she called me and she started talking about a doctor. And after a while I realized she was talking about a doctor in one of the soap operas as if he was a real person. And I thought, that's, that's really strange and, um, and, and not so good. But the thing that, um, one of, at least one of the things, all these compounded together, one of the things that, that really... Uh, made me understand that there was something really wrong going on was mom started to have some um, hallucinations and they were they were mild at first and one of them was even funny uh she called me one time and said you don't have to worry you don't have to come visit me because i took care of it and i said well what happened mom and she said there were bees there was a bee's nest in the bedroom where the light is but don't worry i moved the bed I got the stepladder out, and I sprayed them, and they're all dead now, so don't worry about a thing. Well, you know, I got in my car and ran right up there, and, of course, there were no bees. There was no beehive. Mom hadn't moved. She couldn't have moved the bed anyway. There was no stepladder there, but she believed that it happened, and I, I didn't know what to say. And so now you're probably asking yourself, why didn't they go to the doctor? Well, we did. We did go to the doctor, but in the beginning, um, uh, they weren't so sure what it was either. And so, well, that's a whole other subject. Maybe we'll get into that in a minute. Well, the um, if somebody if somebody's having an experience, um, whether it's real or not. I mean, in in their noggin, in their head, to them, it's as real as real can be. Um, oh, absolutely! And I and I'll have to tell you that when Mom uh, entered the mid and late stages of dementia, she was in a whole other reality. Um, she had by the end of her life, um, Mom had lost all of her uh, memories of me, uh, my husband. Uh, my sister, um, and my dad. She even forgot who my dad was. One time I, uh, I to try to jog her memory and, and see how much she knew, I got out some photographs. And there were some pictures of my dad with his beagle. And I, I told her some funny stories that um, dad had had with the beagle and stories that I knew she w- she would have known um, had she not had dementia. And she listened, 
to the stories, and I thought, well, maybe she does remember. And then she looked at me and said, well, you know, that's not my real husband. <laughs> that's my <laughs> other husband. <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Mom, if there's another husband out there, I don't want to know. <laughs> but, yeah, it's the truth. Her, how many husbands are there total? I mean, <laughs> If we're going to go down this road, you know, should I get a sheet of paper out or a a whole tablet? That's right. So you're right. Toward the uh, end of dementia or even the middle stages, they begin to withdraw from the reality that you and I know, and they enter their their own reality. And it's, it's really hard to get a grip on because you don't know what they're thinking. You just don't know, um, and you want to know because you want to try to help them. But uh, one of the things that um, I, I often think about, and, uh, and I still to this day don't know what I could have done different, was um, Mom never complained about pain when she was with me, when I was taking care of her. So what did that mean? Did she did she not have any pain? Well, that would be great. Of course, that's what I wanted to believe. Or did she have pain and she just wasn't able to tell me? I don't know. Or did she have pain so bad she couldn't tell me? I I don't know which of the three it was, and I I never will know until, no, I I will say at the very end of her life she did have pain. But for for the longest time, for a period of four years, uh, she never complained. And I thought, now that I think about it, I mean, what was going on there? What was she really thinking? I just don't know. Right. Well, the I mean, oftentimes uh, uh, I can at least speak for the American culture. the The idea that I mean, once you're an adult and on your way, you can take care of stuff. You can handle it. You, you know, it's like, do you need help? Oh, I don't. No, no, I got this. You know, the kind of this, this stoic, uh, gung ho. I'm gonna, I'm gonna plow through this, and everything will be okay. But in your book, you talk about um, bringing in help and. And there's really quite a few stages in which help um, comes into the story. And uh, talk about, if you would, how how that help, whether it be uh, hospice care coming to your home or your your husband. And I mean, because c- your life was re- really tossed around. You, you were talking about in the book, uh, you were on your way on a road trip or whatever. I don't know if it's a road trip, but yeah, and you yeah. get a call and you got to turn around and come back. And um, just talk yeah. about the the how perhaps looking for help sooner than later can change the uh, your experience of it. Yeah. Well, in the beginning of mom's disease, I did I did try to minimize it still being in denial, and and so did mom. So, we, but but she wanted to stay in her farmhouse. She didn't want to go anywhere else, and I I totally agreed with that. She's a farmer's wife, and and this is she is stoic. And so I said, well, mom, we'll get you some hired. We'll have a hired help 
come in and help you out for a while. And she wasn't crazy about that idea, but she she knew at that point she she needed to have someone around and I could come I can come over there pretty often, but I wasn't there every day. And so um there are hired caregivers. There's a whole system uh where I live in Maryland and I'm sure there's some in other states. Uh your depart your local Department of Aging probably has a registry of uh registered caregivers who uh will come to the house on a part time basis and um and either just be there for companionship or to help out. But it's and I had the utmost respect for these people. They do very, very hard jobs for what I believe is, is not enough pay. And it's, and it's a tough job because when a caregiver comes to a house, they never know what they're going to be facing. It could be anything from, uh, you know, the dog's sick or um, the patient's fallen down and hurt herself. They don't know. So it's a tough job. But caregivers are just like us. They have their own problems, too. They have times when they're sick. They're, they have times when they have doctor's appointments, or something comes up and they can't make the, you know the trip to the patient's house, so they can't come. What the caregiver agency will do is substitute someone else. So someone else comes to the house, and that's great. But if it happens a lot, and unfortunately, in, in mom's case, it did ha- happen a lot. Mom had a series of one caregiver after another, and uh, sometimes sometimes they just quit. Sometimes they go on to you know, go to college and do other things, because it's, sometimes being a caregiver is just a uh, stepping stone. But Mom couldn't keep all the names straight. Neither could I. And every time we got a new caregiver come in, I had to sit down with them and go over everything all over again. And that got to be hard in itself. So um, that's when I decided uh, that I would bring Mom to to my house because I thought, I've seen what the hired caregivers do, and I'm her, I'm her daughter. Why can't I do that? And plus, I'll care for her like nobody else will. I'll care for her like her own daughter. Well, there's a fallacy in that in that <laughs> argument <laughs> because her own daughter isn't a doctor, a nurse, a caregiver, or a licensed professional of any sort. I love my mom, but I don't know the first thing about caregiving. But I thought I could do it, and I tried to do it, but I soon found that I that I also needed help. I found some uh, some doctors who did house visits house calls, and I know uh, that's almost an unheard of thing these days, especially on the East Coast. Uh, It's very hard to find a doctor who does house calls, but at least in our area, they are there. You just have to look hard for them. And I just started, uh, Google didn't help me out. I couldn't find any there. Even when I asked my own primary care doctor, and mom's primary care doctor, do, do any of you know people who do house calls? They didn't. So I kept asking and asking and asking, and finally I found someone who said, yeah, I know, I know a whole company of doctors and nurses who do house calls. And I got their phone number, and the very next day they showed up. And that was a blessing because 
as mom progressed in her disease, it was really hard for her uh, to get out, go out of the house. In fact, she didn't want to go out of the house, out of the house very much anymore. So to have the doctor come in was was wonderful. And then, of course, um, at the end of her life, we had hospice, which is another another whole another story. Well, you you talked about um, that if you went to the doctor, if you and your mother went to the doctor, the doctor might spend 15, 20 minutes with you. And yet when the doctor came to your home, it was a whole different experience. Yeah. And and the truth is we loved our doctors, our primary care doctors, moms and mine, and they both did what they could to help both of us. Um, but with dementia, there's not a whole lot that uh, doctors can do. Um, you know, I, I don't know if, if your audience knows this, but as of now, I believe, I think this is still true, the only way a, a doctor can find out what kind of dementia your patient has is if they do an autopsy. And, of course, that's you don't want to even get to that, to that point, do you? But right. that's how they find out. But there are some tests that can give them some indications of, of what kind of dementia you have, and they will do those tests, and, and they're worthwhile doing. Um, when, when mom's dementia came and it had progressed at such a point that um, the doctor said it wasn't really um, important at this point to know precisely, although, although they thought it was Lewy body dementia. And they thought that because they lined up mom's symptoms and compared them to the symptoms of um, patients with Lewy body dementia. And they said, this is a, a pretty good match. This is probably what she has. So let's just uh, keep her um, as calm as you can. Uh, make sure she's eating. doesn't matter what she eats as long as she's eating. And, and she seems um, calm and uh, happy, as far as we can tell, she seems happy. So let's just go along with that. What, what they could do, though, was when mom had a um, psychotic episode, and that's where um, medication uh, came in and played a big part. Was that when the police officers came? Yeah, um, what happened was mom had been with us for almost four years, and uh, she had been pretty calm toward the end, but more and more withdrawn. Uh, she would, didn't want to really eat dinner with us anymore, and she wanted to stay in her bedroom. And she seemed happy, and she was taking naps. And so the doctor said, you know, if she seems happy that way, fine. But uh, one one day, it was in June, and it was uh, a nice day, and I had the windows open, and the breeze was coming through. And uh, I was in the living room reading, and uh, my husband David was in the kitchen um, doing some research on the computer. And our dog Clara was, you know, well, napping <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> and, and Mom came out of the bedroom, and I thought, well, that that's unusual in itself. And she walked over to the refrigerator and opened the door, looked inside, then closed it, and then walked back to the kitchen and said, you have kidnapped me. And she, she was yelling this. Uh, you have kidnapped me. You're holding me here against my will. I want the police 
I want the police to come and rescue me now. Well, you know, we were just stunned. We had, I had no idea, and neither my husband David, we had no idea what what she meant or what what was happening. So I I got up and I walked over to her and I said, Mom, it's okay. Uh, You're safe here. No one's going to hurt you. Mom was only 100 pounds, but that little 100 pounds packed a wallop. (laughs) And she pushed (laughs) me against the wall. I thought, whoa. (laughs) And then David came over and said, now, Vivian, everything's okay. And she grabbed his hair. (laughs) This is not funny, right? (laughs) But later on to us it was. So uh, I said, um, but she let it go. And I told David, call 911 and get a, we'll get an ambulance here. And he said, okay. But he said, in the meantime, open the front door and see if she'll go outside because we have a big yard, and she, and she won't go up, go very far, and you go with her. So I said, okay, Mom, let's go. And, and Mom's coming after me. And so we're out there on the steps, and it's like she's, she's never seen my front yard before. She's just looking around. And she's still yelling, saying, I need the police. Get the police here. And so what did I think? I thought, what will the neighbors think now? <laughs> which, is, which is not exactly the first thought you think might come to mind, but that's what I thought. Anyway, David got on the phone, called 911, which is our emergency number. And uh, he said, people are coming. Don't worry. Just everybody be calm. And Five minutes later, two police cars drove up, and I thought, what are they doing here? And as it turned out, when David called 911 and described the situation, the um, the receptionist on the other end thought it sounded like a domestic dispute. And so <laughs> instead of sending um, an ambulance from the hospital, she sent the police. And this this was humorous later on because the policeman walked up the sidewalk to me and said, um, what's going on here? Because I see Mom sitting down on the steps and Dave and I just standing there. So I tried to explain, and I said, I, what I really need, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming, but what I need is to get Mom to the hospital. Well, there are some laws that say you can't, take someone to the hospital against their will. And he said, I'm going to have to ask your mom if she wants to go to the hospital. And so he asked mom, of course, mom said no. So then he said, well, would you like to sit in my police car? (laughs) (laughs) I thought, well, I don't know where this is going to lead. But but anyway, mom said no. And she said, I I just want to sit here for a while. And, uh, And she did. And uh, the policemen, they were the best. They they stayed there for a while until they were pretty sure that uh, everything was okay, and they asked me if I thought I could get her back inside the house. And at this point I did, because Mom was ready to go inside. Oh, whatever uh, had motivated her to, to say all those things and do all those things, it was, it was gone now. So she came in the house, and she said, um, I think I'll take a nap. I said, that's a good idea, Mom. So I got her arranged, and she, she took a nap. And I called her primary care doctor, 
who who was so great because she'd seen this before, and she uh, prescribed a mild uh, antipsychotic uh, medicine for mom, and told me to go up and get it and give her the mildest dose possible. And she said, probably your mom will sleep throughout the night, but if you need me, call me. And uh, that was a wonderful thing to me, to have a, a, a doctor, anybody say, if you need me, call me. Because when you're in the middle of this, uh, you you can feel alone. And it might feel like, you know, what am I going to do? If this happens, that happens. But if you know that there are other people out there willing and ready to help you, it, it makes all the difference. And so... Uh, from that day on, um, after the doctor came and looked at her the next day, mom was on a uh, antipsychotic medicine, which uh, controlled um, the psychotic episodes. In fact, uh, mom never had another one again. I, I have to tell you that all medicine has some effects, right? And so the medicine did make mom uh, even uh, calmer than she was accepting the psychotic episodes, even more calm than she had been before and a little more withdrawn. So I realized that that was probably, um, you know, the price we'd have to pay, that I I wasn't going to see Mom laugh a lot anymore. But she seemed content, and we didn't have any more of those episodes. So that, that was worth it. Nice. Well, looking in hindsight, I mean, in the book, it's such an incremental journey, so to speak. In the beginning, uh, you had the riverfront property on the on the denial, and uh, <laughs> <I> <laughs> well, <did. laughs> well, um, I, because like when you when you moved her into your home to keep everything on the ground floor, maybe change the the dining room into a bedroom just to accommodate the the one floor layout when in general when you take a step back and you look at that in general as you uh, as new elements of this challenge come to you did uh were there traits that you learned that helped you take on change as change kept coming and coming and coming? Well, mainly it's when I learned what I shouldn't do. And, you know, but when, when mom, when dad, my dad died, I, I told my mom, don't worry, mom, you'll never have to leave the farmhouse. I made that promise to her, and she liked it, and she, and she wanted that promise. I shouldn't have made that promise because, um, I don't know if I've ever gone down this route, but I should have had it as a tucked in the back of my mind. We do have assisted living facilities uh, out here, a number of them. They're very good. I should have been able to um, take mom when she was still um, healthy to some of these places and say, Mom, do you, if, uh, if you couldn't get around very well, would you like to live in a place like this? And let her see them and be able to say, yes, I would, or no, I wouldn't. That, that's okay. That was her choice, too. But I didn't do that because I made that promise. So I first thing I learned was don't make promises. 
And the other thing I learned was that sometimes you do have to tell little white lies because when you're dealing with someone with dementia, logic isn't going to work a lot of the time. Um, You can be the kindest person and the most logical person, but they're not going to understand. They're, They're in their own reality. You have to... If you, if you need something done that's important, you might have to tell a, li- a little white lie. And and I did. Uh, when Mom was getting having so many dizzy spells at the farmhouse, I had to get her to my house some way to permanently. I knew that. But I knew she wouldn't come if I told her, Mom, we're moving you to my house permanently. So so I told her, well, Mom, you're having these dizzy spells. Why don't you come to my house for a week? And uh, I'll be around all the time, and I can, I can see how many dizzy spells you're having, but I'll be there to help you out. And she said, okay. And we, we packed up as much as I could. And uh, she didn't seem to mind and uh, drove her down to my house, and there she stayed until the end. But I, I couldn't tell her the truth that, Mom, you're leaving the farmhouse now and you're, and you're not coming back. I couldn't tell her that because that would upset her. It would have been, I don't know what would have happened. So you can't always, you have to deal with their reality, not not your own. And that that's hard. So I learned, you know, about that. And I learned about, you know, the pitfalls of of getting hired help and uh and being realistic about what they can do and, and what they can't do. So um, there's, oh, well, I, we haven't gotten into this, and, and maybe it is not time, but there's a whole thing you have to go through with the financial aspect of all these things. Um, and I, in my yeah. book, I made a checklist of things that you can you need to think about because, believe me, when you're in the middle of this, you will not think about, uh, a power of attorney for legal matters. You probably won't think about making copies of the most important people or um, the do not resuscitate orders or advanced health directives. You won't think about these things because your, your mind's on other things. I mean, the life of your patient. But these are all things that you're going to have to deal with. So, yeah, in the book, I just took a couple of sections and said, here are some things to think about before, during, and after legal things that will help you out. The uh, the condition in any particular household that uh, dementia can come up in is as varied as humanity itself. For example, if both if both spouses worked and they didn't. Mm-hmm have the time as much time as perhaps you had um mm-hmm. how do you how do you take care of yourself i mean because you had to have been pulled in so many directions and mm-hmm. really pushed into challenges that you had no um uh, experience or or training in how do you how do you manage yourself as as this whirlwind of change happens outside of you well it's not easy and i i my heart goes out to people who are still working and a parent has dementia for them uh, assisted living facilities are almost uh, the best uh, alternative 
but you're but what's going to happen a lot of times the caregiver you you're going to get run down you're going to get sick you're going to get tired you're going to get really tired and and that's where even having an afternoon off say you can hire a caregiver but she can only come like two days a week do that and then take yourself and and if you have a hobby or or if you have you know something you want to do try to do that and try to get some rest try to take your mind off of what's happening which is it's very hard to do one thing my doctor told me is that it was important for me <clears throat> to keep on uh having my um you know regular doctor's appointments he said uh you're going to need to uh, take care of yourself, and I can check you out and make sure, you know, your blood pressure is okay, your blood cholesterol, and whatever. I can do those things for you and let you know how you're how you're doing. But uh, I've talked to a lot of people, and a lot of them say that after the death comes, uh, the caregiver uh, often gets sick, sick herself, and I did too. <laughs> I uh, after mom died, <clears throat> I wasn't feeling well, and I was having uh, uh, troubles um, eating, and it was indigestion. That's all it was. But but it was bad enough that I had to go to the doctors, and he said, "Yeah, this is this is pretty normal. This is what happens uh, because of the great letdown uh, when after the patient is gone, uh, the caregiver um, sort of." you know, steps back and not collapses or anything, but just says, oh, life is now going to be very different. And it and it is. But you get through it. Right. Well, uh, at the end of the book, you talk about, I mean, after your mother had passed, that um, it's not like everything just stopped then because she had... Um, she had bills and and <laughs> social security and yep. and yep. those don't just magically go away when no no you've got to deal with all of them and you've got to call people and you have to go to banks and you have to you know just all all kinds of different things and gas bills and electric bills and all of that and you don't want to either. <laughs> You want to you want to put as many of these aside as you can because you're you're tired and you want to rest now, but but you really can't. So in my book, what I I have a list of those two, all the things you might have to to look at. Prioritize them and just do the ones you have to do right away, and put the others aside for a while, and then work on them as you can. But sometimes sometimes there are things that have to be dealt with, like like just the bills that come in. It's got to be paid. And um, I, there was one other tip in the book that I liked uh, when it came to what your what your mother would eat, and it turned out to be pancakes. And the the doctor said, "Hey, <laughs> he didn't say it perhaps this way, but he's, he's like, choose your battles. If if that's what she's going to eat, that's what's for dinner." That's it. And mom, when she first came down to my house, she did a little bit of cooking. Then she stopped. Then she started eating my cooking. And then she stopped eating my cooking. 
<laughs> and she wanted cookies, lots of cookies. So, okay, we had cookies and we had crackers. And, the, and then we hit on the pancakes. She did like my pancakes. And now she wanted pancakes every night for dinner. And she would have cereal for breakfast, same cereal, never changed, and sometimes pancakes for for lunch too. But during the day, she would snack on cookies. And I and I told her doctor, I said, you know, this is not the healthiest uh, diet I've ever seen. <laughs> and and he, also it was Diet Coke, right? And she loved that too. And the doctor just laughed and said, well, you 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 can't actually you can't win this battle. Uh, she's going to eat what she wants to eat, and you're lucky she continues to eat because with some dementia patients, um, they do stop eating, which is a, which is a tragedy. But um, he said, if she'll eat these things, keep feeding them to her, and so I did. <laughs> right. I don't think I can ever see a pancake again <laughs> without thinking of mom. <laughs> Well, an hour can go by pretty fast. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for the audience? Well, just that if you think something's wrong, you're, you could be right. Go to a doctor and, and see what they say. They, they might mention the, the term dementia to you. They might not. But, but it's best to go, go to get yourself to a doctor first and see what they have to say. And then get help for yourself. Um, I knew nothing about dementia at all when we started out. I didn't know there was help out there for me. I didn't know that there were books that were being written. I didn't know about Google. There were there are now support groups out there, and maybe you can find one. Uh, and your Department of Aging, they'll help you out. Don't think that you're in this alone. You're not. There are people who will be able to help you. You just have to find them. Very nice. Well, Leona, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I've really enjoyed this episode. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We've been talking with Leona Upton-Illig, and the topic tonight has been Mom and Dementia and Me, A Caregiver's Journey. That's that's the name of um, Leona's latest book. If, if you're going through dementia or perhaps a, a similar medical condition with a loved one, um, she really does load it up with uh, uh, lots of tips and and things to expect and it, it gives you a heads up before you actually run into it yourself. And I I think she's done a wonderful job with the book. And to to turn around and share her life's path with others to, to help others navigate um, what can be a very confusing and frustrating journey, um, heads off to her. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> Life on planet Earth, right? I mean, sometimes things can get tougher than than you might think. Um, it, it's uh, when we bump up against challenges, and especially if we don't, um, if if we approach them with a sense of denial and and we put things off, and and we really don't want to. Um, 
really face the condition that we're in, we can really miss opportunities that that might have turned the boat around, so to speak, uh, changed our change your dynamic or or your options. Um, sometimes it's not the easiest thing to do to see things for what they are, um, to to really come to terms with what's happening in your life and then, you know, pulling up your britches, so to speak, and, and taking it on because a lot of times um, that's part of the uh, the definition of tough times is when something happens that you don't necessarily have control over, and yet it has a very dramatic and profound influence in your life. It's uh, there's the notion of of fixing a bicycle, and there's the notion of riding a bicycle. A lot of times when we come out of a, a struggle, say you were born into a, a, a household that had domestic violence and whatever, your your mom would get drunk and beat the crap out of everyone. And, and it was really tough. I mean, that might sound like an extreme sentence, but this is planet Earth. That might be a rookie experience to some compared to what they've been through. But what I'm getting at is, so uh, time progresses and you move out and, and now now you're in college and, and you're paying your own bills and you have your own place and uh, the, the struggle, the, the pain, the heartache has, has diminished and and your life is, quote, normal, unquote. Well, yeah, you know, that's kind of like fixing the bicycle. You you get out of the turbulence. You get out of the struggle. You get out of the pain. You get out of the suffering. And you you get out on your own and... And now you're you're paying your bills. You decide everything about your life. You're an adult. Things are are under your control. Well, that's not uh, how do you say this? That that's an accomplishment in and of itself. I don't want to discount that at all. To for people to go through a very challenging time, especially when they're children growing up in a very caustic and hostile environment, and then they get out on their own. That's the notion of fixing your life. That's the notion of fixing your bicycle. But there's riding your bicycle, metaphorically riding your bicycle. And that's a whole different thing. For myself, I was um, I was 35 working in broadcast television. I'm an engineer. Things are things are going my way, and and uh, everything's on the up and up. And I thought, ha ha ha! I thought that I knew who I was and what my life was about. 
I thought I knew the trajectory of my life. I would work in TV. And I and I have worked in TV for over 40 years. But there's riding a bicycle. There's There's living your life. And again, I am not discounting. I don't want to put down whatsoever coming out of the torment, coming out of the struggle, because that in and of itself can 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 be such a a challenging, challenging thing. But if it was never modeled for you, if you were in a a, a mundane household. And and again, I'm not discounting anything, but if there if there wasn't the spark of life in your family dynamic, and what I'm getting at is, I got cracked open. I've shared it many many times on the show, like a bug hitting a windshield, and. What I learned from that is your heart and your soul, your heart and your soul is like this dynamic duo. The passion of your heart and the vision of your soul. Before I got cracked open, I had no clue whatsoever that life was was intended to be expansive, that consciousness seeks expansion, that you as consciousness seeks expansion. Write a book, Les. (laughs) What? What? Start a podcast. Study water. Learn FPGA programming. I'm I'm six plus decades into this life, and my heart, my soul are feeding me ideas like I'm a teenager. <laughs> and that's what I mean about riding a bike. It's like um, l- left unchecked, your ego can easily consume your the whole of your consciousness. In other words, the life in the fast brain. You know, busy, busy mind. Check your phone. Check this. Check that. Repeat. Check your phone. Check this. Check that. Repeat. Check your phone. And it's like you have this narrative of your ego that has this um, maybe anxious or maybe stressed or maybe... Maybe there's a little worry in there and and you're a little um, unsure of your future and you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Certainly the last few years, everybody was um, not sure what was going to happen. And, and it's not like that's, that chapter's over, but, but what's your life purpose? I wouldn't have said... Um, spiritual podcast host, uh, published author, whatever. I wouldn't have said those things because it wasn't in my it wasn't in my ego's narrative. I I was life in the fast brain for sure. And then when I get cracked open, it's like uh, I don't know. It you know in hindsight, my 
um, once I gave attention, once I slowed my busy mind down and I gave attention to my heart and my soul, um, very curious things happened. Um, uh, I, I meditated for like at least a decade um, to a point where it kind of snapped into place. And uh, and I I learned about the vision my my soul had for my life, and this is a kind of a weird one because it's not it's not done unraveling, but when I when my my soul first told me to 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 write a book to to, to start a spiritual podcast. I've I I took action on that. We're we're in our thirteenth year and hundreds and hundreds of episodes and boy howdy I didn't see that coming. But when I live my life now, you know, even if I think about the last six months, I'm I'm sixty three and the last six months I have changed as a person. I have evolved who I am as a person. I I scrub my, I like to call it, uh, I scrub my persona. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is my, uh, my soul just, this is 25 plus years ago, had me um, do these exercises where I pay attention to the 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 feeling of energy in my body and I, and I do this uh, energy scrub, so to speak. And in 25 years later, I realized that what my soul was teaching me was how to, how to hone myself, how to um, guide myself, how to perhaps herd my ego. Come on, giddy up ego. <laughs> to herd my ego into a more authentic narrative, a more authentic narrative of who I am. And I tell you what, my ego would not have guessed who I was before I got cracked open at 35. My ego thought it had a a clear and precise view of who I was, and it was completely and totally wrong. It was categorically wrong. I wasn't riding a bike. I was, I had, uh, I, I don't want to discount it, but I had this single narrative in my head. I'm a TV engineer. I'm a father. I'm a white picket fence narrative playing out. And uh, I could have I spent my whole life there had I not got cracked open. And, and now... Who am I? Who am I, and what's my life? Hell, <laughs> I don't know what's coming down the pike. I just know I don't want to say no to my heart, and my soul. When my heart, and my soul give me a, a new idea or a new narrative, I want to get on that sucker and write it. I want to. I want to keep my mind open to my heart, and my soul's inspiration, moment to moment, day to day. I want to slow my ego down so where there's large tracks of quiet, in other words, my ego is not in life in the fast brain. I want to slow down and be still 
And in that stillness, in that in the quiet between my my ego's thoughts, I create a canvas, an, a portal, an aperture for an, a much deeper wisdom within me to connect with my mind. A, a much deeper wisdom that might not even be a linear wisdom. It, um, I think my soul operates on a whole different um, dynamic than a linear symbolic mind uh, like the ego prefers. But I don't want to miss a thing. I really don't want to miss a thing. I want to um, I want to stay connected to my to the vision of my soul, and I want uh, I've taught my ego not to be intimidated when my heart gets fire in it, when my heart gets passionate, when my heart uh, what do you say becomes unbridled, <laughs> unbridled. Uh, um, I want to honor that. Anyway, just a thought. It's are you are you riding your bike? Are you listening to your heart and your soul? Are you allowing a new possibility, a new dynamic to come into your life? I want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us tonight. We do this for you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Until next time. This has been a New Human Living broadcast. If you're looking for spiritual resources, there's literally hundreds of podcasts just like this one, free online. You can find them at newhumanliving.com. If you sign up for the newsletter, I write a weekly blog that helps you contemplate the nature of nature, contemplate the nature of your own human genome, contemplate your own human potential. How powerful is that? I can say it's powerful because you are powerful. I want to thank you for joining us in tonight's broadcast. I appreciate you, the listener. Until next time, thanks for listening.